care for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us I am Kate Willett And I am Julia Clare this week was a, a real high uh, for Reply Guys. Uh, there was some great fucking replying happening uh, on the internet. Uh, this is going to be one of the greatest all-time replies, so uh, I'm going to just go ahead and, and play it. This is Ben Shapiro discussing uh, the song Wet Ass Pussy. Here are some of the lyrics. You ready? Whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. Hold up. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass P word. Make that pullout game weak. <laughs> yeah, you effing with some wet ass P word. P word is female genitalia. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet ass P word. Give me everything you got for this wet ass P word. Beat it up N word. Catch a charge. Extra large and extra hard. Put this P word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. This is amazing. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he followed it up with a, a reply to um, himself that says, uh, as I also discussed on the show, my only real concern is that the women involved who apparently require a bucket and a mop get the medical care <laughs> they require. My doctor wife's differential diagnosis, bacterial vaginosis, yeast infection, or trichomonas. There's, there's so much wrong here, but I want to say, first of all, in my experience, a yeast infection creates more of a dry ass pussy. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I mean, you know what else causes me to be, become extremely dry? Uh, listening to Ben Shapiro say female genitalia. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it, it's kind of an it's kind of an amazing thing to um, admit on Twitter that your wife told you that uh, you can only have a wet ass pussy if you have a disease. You know, like that. Th this um, is the, the kind of a, yeah. confirming to everyone that Ben Shapiro's never made his wife wet ever yeah um, and that she's like, already knew in our hearts yeah and that she's that that she's lying to him about that she's like oh yeah the, <laughs> the reason that this never happens is uh it, it wouldn't be natural um it, it's I, just like a long con in their house that um that she has to like lie to him about the way that women's bodies work yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. Ben Shapiro is someone whose personality so perfectly matches his terrible speaking voice. Um, and I think that that's a real, a real thing of beauty uh, because I, he has exactly the voice of like every guy I remember from college who was in like young Republicans who, yeah, I mean, absolutely had never made a woman horny in their entire lives. And yeah, um, honestly, no notes on his on his rendition of, of wet ass pussy. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, obviously, like this is just it, this is dumb to the point where it probably doesn't really require a lot of discussion. But I guess one thing I was thinking about is that he frames this in terms of his concern for uh 
women's empowerment, which is like a, a general trend that I think we've seen um, in the past few years, you know, uh, people talking about, you know, well, oh, you support women. Why don't you support Kellyanne, you know, or Kellyanne Conway? <laughs> uh, you know, oh, <laughs> you libs think you're such, you know, feminist and that, you know, it's the the Republican ideal of like what is, you know, empowering women or whatever. Like, obviously, you know, hard to hard to say in most cases if that's even a, a good faith. I mean, statement it's of like their goals. it's. Yeah, it's like, I mean, female empowerment for Republicans and a lot of like centrist libs is women should be able to be war criminals. too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I feel like leads us nicely um, into our next discussion point, which is uh, the vice the vice presidential candidate for the Democratic Party was announced this week. Uh, and it is. The person that we all knew it would be, Kamala we Harris. knew it would be. It's Kamala, the top cop herself. Uh, yeah, wow. Um, I yeah, think that the they author... need to add a third cop. They need to add a third cop to, to, <laughs> Just to the to, ticket. Rule of, it's a rule of threes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I you know, there's. I guess, you know, it'd be a little copaganda-ish, but it'd be kind of kind of fun to imagine, uh, you know, the... Uh, leadership of the united states as a as a buddy cop film you know uh just with them riding along together you know oh my god maybe running into your dad uh oh yeah i mean that's that's what i i said that to someone i was like who's on the selection committee there my dad <laughs> although i but, don't know my, yeah kind of i don't know yeah <laughs> pretty much uh yeah, I knew that this was, you know, we all knew that this was this was coming. The thing that it, it was so surprising to me is that it's just like, I mean, we know that the, the DNC is out of step and out of touch with the current moment in every way. And they have just like ultimate contempt for the base of their own fucking party. But um, I was really kind of appalled that in this current moment that Val Demings was on the shortlist as well. I know that she is, you know, she is, she's a congresswoman from Florida. Florida is a swing state. Sure. She's a black woman. Sure. But she also was the police chief of the Orlando police department. And she was a, a police officer for 27 years. And oh boy, that does not at all square with the current uh, moment and the the nationwide uh, protests in every every single state in this country um, about about police brutality. Yeah, I mean, but is yeah, there is so, there? I don't know. Maybe it does square because the thing is, is you know, we want to defund and abolish the police, and you know, if we do that, police are going to need some other jobs. You know, maybe president and vice president of the United oh, States. Okay, you know what? That I really like that. That's good. It's like a it's a transition pro uh, program out of <laughs> out of <laughs> the precincts and into the government. Yeah, not um, not everyone can learn to code, Julia. You know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I keep threatening to learn to code. I'm going to learn to code someday. I'm going to learn what the cloud is and I'm going to learn to code. I mean, what are they going to um, do? They're all going to become coal miners. That industry is dying as well. That no. industry is dying. Um, um, but, you know, yeah. it's just it's it's frustrating because it's like on the one hand, this behavior is completely expected from party leadership. Uh, but on the other hand, it's 
you know, every time, every time it's shocking to see, uh, to see the same thing that always happens, which is, you know, liberals immediately abandoning the principles that they say that they believe in fervently Mm. when it comes to standing a celebrity. And I'm trying to say this carefully because on the one hand, I absolutely do not want to minimize the fact that like there's never been a black woman in the Oval Office before. And I don't think that people are wrong to be excited about that. And I do think that Kamala Harris is going to be the subject of many racist and sexist attacks that will be wrong. But at the same time, it's weird that the entire conversation about uh, her record on these issues just has to be completely thrown out the window. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really, <laughs> I, I, when, you know, when the, oh, I, I got the notification on my phone. I was tweeting about this, that I got the notification that she was going to be the VP nomination, uh, at 420 <laughs> yesterday, um, which is the worst 420 ever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, she, has really made her entire career on being like, you know, like so many other women of her ilk in a, in a different way, you know, your Hillary Clinton's, your Nancy Pelosi's, like the woman in the boys club. And in, in, in her case, it was, you know, the prosecutorial route. Um, and I just think, and she's been so proud of that. And I can understand, like, I just, I think that there are a lot of times when women learn all the wrong lessons from being in like a male dominated field. Um, and I think that, yeah, I mean, she's, she's been like very proud of her prosecutorial career and her career as like her time as AG, which was also a disaster for different reasons. But yeah, I mean, I just like, I feel nothing about this. I just like, I feel uh, I just feel nothing about it. I just, I have no emotion about it. I knew, like, we all knew it was coming and I'm ready to mm, give myself a lobotomy. Yeah. I mean, this isn't, this isn't for us anymore. You know who I was, uh, I, I saw this video of Jessica Chastain, the actress on Twitter, and she was showing these dolls, uh, that she's like, you know, some, some kids play with, Barbie or G.I. Joe, but my kid plays with real superheroes. And then she shows action figures of Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. And I really think that so much of this is just, you know, a, a one for one relationship that people have like mentally with like liking celebrities and uh, and politics, like the very, you know, the first comment that was made is like, oh, this means Maya Rudolph gets to be on SNL, you know, it's all over or, yeah. you know, we're going to like, uh, you know, and you know, I mean, it's just, which by the way, my, my <laughs> uh, the only line that I remember from Maya Rudolph playing, uh, playing Kamala during the debates was like, I'm like that aunt that lets you smoke weed and that, and then arrests you for smoking weed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a larger problem of, like, parasocial relationships that people have with people they don't know, being celebrities, influencers, and um, politicians. People just, like, project everything onto them. And um, ultimately, it obscures their position as, like, public servants and that they, like, we are not their fans. Like, they are our, like, we're their boss. Yeah. Um. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just, like, yeah, I mean, the celebrity, like, the celebrity reaction to all this, even, like, I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus is, like, the funniest person alive. I think she's one of the greatest comic actors in the history. And I saw her uh, holding up the New York Times uh, today's today's paper with, with Kamala on it, being like, I'm going to frame this or something. And I was like, ugh. I just like I just don't like celebrities are so, I mean talk about another another group of people that are insanely out of touch and uh just like out of step with with what the base of the party wants and needs and people's like again people's material material needs um that I just you I just can't even I, I'm just like yeah of course of course these like rich <laughs> people who live in a bubble are excited about this yeah we do have some good news, though. Uh, we sure which do. You've already heard, but we, you know, we want to celebrate uh, Ilhan Omar's victory for a little bit. Uh, yeah, she, you know, she's really been put through the ringer by everyone. You know, this is so. Yeah, and and I know that you you were a little bit more optimistic than I was about this, but I really thought that there was like a good chance that she wasn't going to win her primary, and that's that's through no fault of her own or no weakness of her own because I think Ilhan Omar is like tough as nails, and I love I love her work, love what she does. Uh, but her opponent just had so much fucking money and was outspending her seven to one, uh, and you know i've you know we've we've all seen what what that can do in in other races but it's actually really inspiring that like that even that much money can't beat just like competent organizing um and you know someone also just like a candidate who people see as like the real thing yeah um and someone who's like actually is going to bat for them um and yeah she won by and i didn't realize that she won by 20 points yeah i Um, thought that something like that would happen i mean you know aoc also had a really huge victory rashida slave i mean there's been for the past couple years of discussion that the election of the squad was like a was like a fluke yeah Yeah. just that the establishment was caught off guard so they didn't really campaign enough but there was a real effort to defeat these people um this time and oh yeah yeah and you know i i was less worried about aoc and rashida talib one because like I, th- I think of i mean aoc i know obviously like we live in new york we know how popular she is here um and but ilhan omar has been has really been attacked from all sides and like islamophobia is so powerful in this country that that is like really what contributed to me thinking that she had a chance of of losing um but i she's been she's just been the recipient of so many 
really grotesque attacks yeah, uh, over the past when, two yeah, years. Yeah, you know, I think about this McSweeney's piece all the time. Um, <laughs> the headline is, I support women of color unless they are politically to my left. And Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so much of this making our elected officials representative of, you know, what the country is actually like is is a good goal. I mean, like, it's, you know, it's ridiculous and horrible and um, symptomatic of many larger problems that, you know, the majority, the like vast majority of elected officials are still white men. But I mean... I don't know, with all these celebrities and stuff, you know, it really, it really is like, it really is just about the people who agree with them. It's really, really, really disingenuous. You know, it's as, it's as disingenuous in many cases as uh, Ben Shapiro's concern for women. And, you know, the, the thing that, uh, that as always gives me hope is the fact that, um, in the last few years, we've seen more and more candidates who not just aesthetically, but like socioeconomically, look you know rep are representative of of the of the average american or or people who more closely um you know uh reflect what their district looks like are winning um and i think yeah that's the only thing that gives me hope i, I at this point i'm like i still i don't feel confident that biden is going to win just because like uh the president is already trying to like fuck with the mail <laughs> and, like, yeah like it's very clear that he's trying to like shut down the usps because he wants to try to steal the election yeah Um, yeah i I hadn't thought of that actually which makes me feel dumb but that's a good point (laughs) all right well i think we did it again we've uh solved everything in america yeah and it work and i'm really stoked because this week you know i mean we end up uh debating the extent to which electoral politics is useful as a mechanism for change at this point. But I think ultimately we both land on the side that it is, you know, to, to one extent or another. Um, and, you know, so we talked to a lot of candidates, um, but I'm very stoked that this week we have an episode about change through other means. We got to talk to labor journalist Kim Kelly about uh, direct action, mutual aid, unionizing your workplace. And it was just such a really great conversation. I'm such a big fan of her work. And anarchism, most importantly, our first our first just out and out unabashed anarchist interview on the podcast so you know we're just we're keeping it fresh we're keeping it sharp all right so uh we will be back (laughs) this week uh we're gonna make fun of ben shapiro some more soon um and And won't that be a joy yeah if you're not a subscriber to our patreon and you can uh throw us five bucks a month so that we can keep making this show um and so that you get access to a bunch of other episodes we would make four extra episodes a month it doesn't seem like a lot but it is a lot yeah it's like an extra four three and a half four hours of of content every month uh just for our our patreon subscribers it's just me imitating trump that's what's behind the paywall all it is and you know we're not going to change it yeah. There's no need to change it. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, folks. Um, happy replying. And uh, we will see you next week or on our Patreon editions. Bye. 
Yeah, you effin' with some wet-ass P-word. P-word is female genitalia. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet-ass P-word. Give me everything you got for this wet-ass P-word. Beat it up, N-word. Catch a charge. Extra large and extra hard. Put this P-word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top, I want to ride. I do a kegel while it's inside. Spit in my mouth, look in my eyes. This P-word is wet. Come take a dive. It continues uh, along these lines. Uh, and it gets significantly, significantly. Hello and welcome back to Reply, guys. We are so lucky to be here this week with someone we've been wanting to have on the podcast for a while. Journalist Kim Kelly, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me and for putting up with me being late to my own meeting. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, I mean, yeah, we're, we're free, we're free and easy here where there's no, you know, uh, Punctuality is uh, a tool of, of the oppressor. I think. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, when we extended the invitation to uh, an anarchist to come on the show, you know, we were ex we were expecting excitement. We were expecting that you would be perhaps seven minutes late. You know, we don't know. Yeah. Uh, Look, yeah. There, there there are no rules. I think that's what that's what this new frontier is about. There are no yeah. more rules. Yes. So I I was very excited to talk to you because I don't think that we've ever had an anarchist on the podcast before uh or at least not someone who is open about that um you know our show can be i you know we we interview a lot of uh leftist candidates on our show which is something that i am very proud of and excited about uh but you know i also really resonated with um your i don't know your insight into you know, non-electoral strategies for change, uh, mutual aid, um, direct action. And yeah, it's, there's been so much, you know, focus on anarchists because, you know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump mm. have, you know, been, you know, running their mouths talking about, you know, Antifa and, you know, these white anarchists. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I just I wanted to uh I wanted to learn a little bit more from you about how people should actually think about what it means to be an anarchist. Right. Well, first, do not listen to anything that Joe Biden or Donald Trump have to say on the matter, or generally anything that any elected politician has to say on that matter, because they're already playing for a very different team. Like, right. The fact that, I mean... It's sort of there's an inherent tension there because you have people that are working for the state and trying to gain power within the parameters of the state. And then you have people who think that state shouldn't exist. So it's fairly obvious that we wouldn't, you know, get along that well. But the, <laughs> this latest kerfuffle has really been I mean, the thing is that the um, I think the piece where that you mentioned for the Washington Post was writing about, you know, don't blame everything on anarchists. I wrote that back in June. Yeah, like this has yeah. been and it just keeps popping up and being more timely over and over again. The poor I have like this uh, one of my Twitter followers just made me a sign because my standard response is like, please don't make me tap the sign. Like anarchists aren't the root of all evil here. It's yeah. generally the whole, you know, white supremacist terror that is the United States that is causing all these problems. But, um, you know, there's this like I said in the piece. 
And it is a little bit of a, an issue of semantics. And I understand that, you know, word usage isn't the most important issue facing people right now. But the fact that anarchism and anarchists are being used as this sort of linguistic stand-in for things that are bad or people who are bad and will hurt you or people who want to destroy everything. It's just not, <laughs> I mean, it's not accurate for one thing. And for another thing, it's going to get a lot of people hurt or imprisoned or killed. I mean, the United States government has a very long, illustrious history of targeting anarchists. Mm. Like, it's kind of their whole thing. Like, we have, like, whether it was, you know, the Sedition Act back in, like, a couple hundred years ago, or, like, what happened at J20 um, around the inauguration protest when 200 people were facing charges of, like, 75 years in prison for being at a protest. Like, it is... It is easy for the state to sort of use anarchists and radical leftists and communists who are not the same thing as anarchists, <laughs> which is another bugbear of mine. We're different. But um, it is very common for the state to use political dissidents, we'll say, as scapegoats because it is a lot easier to get people who don't understand the ideology or the philosophies behind it to fear and 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 sort of assume that the anarchists are out to get them the anarchists are out to you know just break every window and burn every police precinct which honestly like you know that's not necessarily a bad thing but it's not all there is is this not let's just admit it's cool it's cool yeah. <laughs> i mean our, our tax dollars are paying for that shit like yeah in return i'm trying to get a return on my investment but <laughs> it's it's just it's a silly thing but it's also a very dangerous one because we're going to be some of the people that get like people like me, especially because I'm a mouthy broad who talks about being anarchist and anti-fascist all the time. Like I'm fully expecting a knock on my door and I'm a white lady. So I have it way easier than so many other people in, who are involved in this community. Like it is it, frustrating and I don't I, I'm not a fan of the whole scenario. So I try to get it out there like. Anarchism does not mean chaos. Like, okay, maybe the the Greek root of the word means that, but we're a long way away from you know that that very basic definition. So yeah, it's a very I, long rant. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I I thought that your your piece in the post about this was uh, was so interesting because I think uh, for a lot of people the idea of what anarchist principles are is really kind of hazy and um unclear and um and i know that you've you've uh you've published pieces about it uh before but you explain like pretty explicitly in the piece um about like mutual aid and direct action and one that i had not heard of which was a horizontalism mm. yeah, um that's, that's the good one yeah, they're, they're and which which is uh, I'm reading sexual. directly. Which is sexual? No, I'm yeah, just kidding. Right. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, which I can't. Is, I'm which stopping. Is, which is which is the missionary position? We we all know. Um, <laughs> I mean, free love is a big. T- it used to be a big deal in the anarchist community. <laughs> I mean, but okay. So reading directly from your piece, you said uh, it's a non-hierarchical organizational system in which decisions are made by consensus, and that obviously sounds great but i'm sure that a lot of people when they hear that are like what the fuck does that even look like <laughs> like we can't get 
we can't get anything done by consensus in this in this country. And I think the reason why, like to me, it seems like anarchism is a is a response to our current state, which is deeply fucked, obviously, and like com- kind of se- seems irreparably broken. Um, but I, I, it's you know, it's it's not just current. It's like anarchism has been around for a long time. Um, yeah, we've but, been out here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, no, I know that it's not, it's not just like it, anarchism didn't just pop up in like the last year. I, I understand that. Um, but, or even the last 10 years, but what do you say to people who, when you describe anarchism to them, just like can't even envision it and don't, and think that it sounds like, like magic, like just kind of, <laughs> You know, because, you know, horizontalism in particular sounds very, um, I can, I can, I can just imagine like trying to explain this to my dad, which is, I'm assuming Mm -hmm. similar to if I were to explain this to Joe Biden or something that, (laughs) um, he would be like, oh yeah, this fucking kumbaya bullshit. And I like, I would love to know what you say, what you would say to people who maybe react in that way. Right. Well, it's. I mean, I think it's sort of a a sad thing if you can't think of anything better than what we've got right now. You know, like things have not always been like this. Capitalism has not always been the law of the land. I mean, the United States is only what, 200, 300 years old? Like it's change is possible. And it is not it is not completely far fetched to think that we can do some reorganizing. And when it comes down to explaining things on an individual level, when it comes to something like horizontalism, it sounds, yeah, it's like a jargony word, like. No one mm-hmm. likes jargon. Uh, jargon's for nerds. But horizontalism just means, like, it's, it's not that one... It, it's Nobody is in charge, but everybody is in charge. Is it, It's people coming together as a group to make decisions that impact how they're going to live their lives. So talk to your dad. I'm going to imagine your dad is like my dad. So talk to your dad and be like, okay, so you're and your buddies at the gun club. You wanna? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, I'm like I'm from the middle of nowhere. Like I'm a gun-toting redneck. That's a whole other conversation. But um, yeah, so you're buddies at the gun club. You want to uh, let's say you want to go on an outing, and there's like six of you there. Instead of one person, like Bob, fucking Bob. Instead of Bob being like, all right, we're all gonna go here. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do that. You, you don't you don't play like that. All of you talk about what you want to do. You figure it out. You make a decision by consensus. And then you go do the thing you're trying to do. Like, horizontalism is just another way of making decisions where it doesn't come down to who's in charge, who's dictating. Things aren't coming from the top. It's horizontal because we're all on the same level. Right. And, like, yeah, obviously this works perhaps a little better in, uh, you know, meetings for the anarchist collectives I've been part of. But the the whole thing, I know it can seem like a, a wacky thing to consider when we're looking at the United States, which is a huge, just chaotic mess of horrible competing interests. But I mean, you have to think about the fact that anarchists don't think the, think the United States should exist. Like, we don't want the state to be there in the first place. So if we're at a point where we're actually engaging in horizontalism, we're not going to have, like, a president and a Congress and, like, all this other bullshit. Like, it's, it's going to be enacted on a smaller local community level. And that is kind of a bigger idea and a bigger goal that I'm not going to live to see. But somebody might. Like, it's... Hmm. 
there, there's a, I'm trying to cram like 200 years of theory into something digestible. But. Yeah. Well, so here's a question that I think is, you know, I'm going to say it's relevant to our listeners, but really it's relevant to me personally. So I've always been someone that, you know, my politics have uh, kind of broadly been about wanting a bigger government, for example, uh, Medicare for all, um, free housing, no landlords, public pl- publicly owned housing. Um, you know, I, I'm much more in the uh, the communist direction. And I think that in the past few months, it's really the first time I've noticed that there are many ways uh, in which these things are reconcilable and that a lot of anarchist principles such as mutual aid are things that are extremely beneficial to myself and my community at this moment and that there's a way that even for you know leftists who are kind of on you know in some ways the opposite end of that spectrum from big government to no government that you know um anarchism is still very relevant to us. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. Right. Well, I mean, the way the way it's being framed isn't uh, isn't quite accurate. Right. Like there's like communism, socialism is not on one side. Anarchism is on the other. No, we're all advancing towards the same goal. Like anarcho communism is a thing. It's kind of like we, we joke when I, cause I have tons of communist friends. And we kind of joke like, okay, as long as we get to the revolution together, we'll figure out the details after. Mm. So like the, the communist, like, okay. So when it comes to communism, like it's, it's, it's what, what people ultimately want communists and anarchists is like a free society determined by the workers, determined by the people. And communism is kind of the last stop on the train before you get off at Anarchyville. Like we all want the same thing. There's just disagreements about the ways that it comes about. Like communist socialism, they they want, uh, you know, a dictatorship with the proletariat. They want a like the state to be in the hands of the people and to be administering all this stuff. The anarchists want the state to not exist because the people are already determining these things for themselves. Like it's it, it's it's not like two different sides. It's more of a linear progress where it's like like there's the socialists, then you get your way to communism, and then like you might eventually end up anarchism. Like it's a uh, it's all leftist political tendency shit, essentially. Like, like it's we're essentially all in the same team because, yeah, like you said, Medicare for all is great. We should have that. We should have live in a world where everyone is taken care of, like whether that's being administered by the state or by you know the people themselves, by smaller councils, by smaller organizations. Like that is those are the kind of nit and picky details where different political tendencies diverge, but ultimately we all want the same thing, which is why I have, like, obviously I'm in community with a lot of anarchists, but I have a bajillion friends who are socialists, who are commies, who are even just regular progressives. And, like, I probably even have some liberals thrown in there. Like, we're all fundamentally on the you? same team. No, I'm huh? just kidding. I said, <laughs> how dare you? I'm just joking. <laughs> well, you know, I'm also involved in the labor movement. And, yeah, you know, that's a, a diverse spectrum. No, as I it were. agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, no I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I think, you know, so in, in my experience, I haven't uh, encountered a ton of anarchists uh, outside of, 
you know, leftist spaces uh, since maybe college. But um, what I have encountered is a ton of libertarians. Like there's just a there's a, a big group of people in this country who really want to see, uh, you know, a, a way, way, way smaller state or um you know, or no state at all, but like their vision of what that looks like is still um, very capitalist. And, you know, how do you how do you talk to those people? Well, I mean, another word for anarchism is libertarian socialism. Like it's Mm. there are a lot of commonalities, but there's right libertarianism and there's left libertarianism. Like, yes, we all want to get rid of the government. And there are, you know, there's a little bit of overlap, but obviously the right wing takes it in all kinds of fucked up directions. Like, it's, I mean, it's mostly concerned with uh, age of consent laws by, by state. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Kinda, yeah. They make it weird. They make it weird <laughs> and they make it racist and they make it real fucking, they're very different teams. Like it's like that big blanket of libertarianism. There's a lot going on underneath that blanket. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it's of age. Of age consensual. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, it's it's interesting talking about these sort of political factions and these different. It's it's just so nerdy, but it's so important, too, because this is like it's real people and it's real ideologies that are actually impacting the world we live in. Um, I can't remember your initial question about the bad libertarians, though. What, What can we take me back? Um, I, how do you, how do you talk to those people? Like, let's say you're face to face with one of those guys. Cause let's be honest, it's, uh, usually men and, you know, maybe he's, uh, you know, he's grown out his neck beard. He's just jerked off to uh, an Ayn Rand novel. Uh, and you know, you're trying to convey to him why we, you know, why we can't just be concerned with, uh, the tyranny of the state. We also have to simultaneously be concerned with the tyranny of capital. How do you talk to that guy? Well, I generally try to avoid it, but <laughs> that's the right move. But yeah. Yeah. Given that again, I have I to talk that's... to my dad sometimes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's fine. those commonalities, right? Where it's like, look, we both fucking hate the, well, in my case, I'm also like, like a, a gun guy. I don't know. So like I can find common ground where it's like, okay, we hate the state. We like guns and self-defense. What other, okay, what things are we disagreeing on and how can I move you on those things? Like there's, I mean, the, yeah, libertarians are interesting because some of them have potential. Some of them are like, you just need to read like the right books or have the right conversation. And then maybe you'll have a breakthrough and realize, okay, all this other stuff is no good, but we can hold on to like the good stuff and learn some more. But I mean, also when you come to that section of the, like the creepy libertarian zone, like some of that turns into weird sovereign citizen stuff and like some of that turns into militia stuff and then some of that gets real dark. So it's, it's kind of picking your battles there. Like if someone's giving you signals that they might actually listen or you feel like you can find common ground, then you should try if you want to, if you feel safe doing so. Because some of these guys are not safe individuals to be around. But like it's, I don't know, it's kind of like picking your battles, man, like. There are some people who are in the libertarian milieu who I feel like, okay, we can, we could figure something out here. But some people I'm like, I hope that guy is at least like three towns away from me when I wake up tomorrow. Like, yeah, it's a spectrum. I think, I think that your, your point about um, how like there are anarchist ideals and 
um, positions are are compatible with, you know, obviously things like can be compatible with things like socialism and communism. But it's I, I think it's important for people to know that they're like, for instance, mutual aid is something that you can do right now. And people have been doing it right now. And obviously, we don't live in <laughs> an anarchist uh, society yet. But I, I think it's important to make sure that um, that these ideas, you know, I'm not an anarchist myself, but I certainly subscribe to the efficacy of, of mutual aid. And, um, and, and I agree with a lot of a lot of the principles that you outlined. Um, but I think that I think it's really important to let people know that, like, you don't have to wait for, you know, uh, again, for like the complete destruction of 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 the state to to enact some of these these things. And I, I just think it's always important to make sure that people know that, like, like the revolution is now, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, so we talk about I mean, there's. Obviously, there's a lot of different schools of thought within anarchism itself about, you know, said destruction of the state, what it would look like, how it would go, yada, yada, yada. But what uh, the way that I approach it, at least, is thinking about what, how we can make the world better now. Like, how we yeah. can start building the world that we actually want to live in. Like, the revolution begins at home. Like, I don't think that we're going to have, like, a big explosive, well... You know, a couple years ago, I would have said, I don't think we're going to have a big explosive Civil War II. But I don't know if I can say that anymore, given the state of things. But, so, but, but yeah, essentially, like, you you can live anarchist principles and live anarchist ideals now. Like yeah. like you're saying about mutual aid, that's, you know, that was our thing. But now everyone is doing it because they realize that it's important and that it helps people and it brings people closer together. It fosters that sense of community. A lot of what, like, the most basic thing about anarchism, like, when you think of it as an ideology, it comes down to treating people right and acting with basic decency towards other people and believing that people are inherently good and will do the right thing if they are able, if they're given the space to do it. And I think that's something we've really been seeing with the coronavirus pandemic, with the uprising, all of, all of this, you know, the state of things as they are, all these things that are happening. The way that people have been responding, whether it's, you know, people bringing groceries to elders in their neighborhood, they wouldn't have done that if they didn't feel that pressure. Whether it's people setting up fridges full of free food or working with houseless people to defend their, you know, their camp to here in Philly. Like there's there's so many things that people are doing now that are absolutely like an anarchist way to be. They're just maybe not thinking of it in those terms, which is I mean, if you haven't spent the time to read about anarchism and don't have any anarchist friends, like why would you know? Like it, it's been as ideology and as, as a community, it's been denigrated and written off as this sort of insane, radical, pie in the sky, bomb throwing nonsense, <laughs> nonsense zone. It's like why would you think like that standing in line instead of pushing in front of other people? That's the anarchist thing to do. Like we're we're really nice unless you're a fascist, and then <laughs> very churchy, you know, very churchy. I, I mean, uh, there, there is a Christian anarchism strain too, but that's a whole other thing. Oh it's, my god! Wow, it's it's a whole. It's it's like well, any I think, political tendency. It's, <laughs> it's probably on. just just the root word of it is the the branding issue. Mm. I think. Uh, yeah. Well, that and it's also like it's convenient for politicians and 
people in power to hammer the whole anarchy equals chaos thing because if people understood what anarchism really was, there'd be a lot more anarchists out there. That's yeah. the thing. I I do want to make sure we get to talk about one other topic uh, mm. because I, I really liked the piece that you wrote, I think, you know, last week or a week and a half ago for the baffler uh, about the new face of union busting. And mm. I know you, you've been a labor writer for a long time. And I, I was wondering uh, if you could describe for our listeners what the new face of union busting is and what people should be looking out for. Right. So when it comes to union busting, I think, well, it's, there's still not a ton of literacy around labor issues in general, because we don't learn about it in school. But when the idea of union busting, people think of like, you know, strike breakers and like the Teamsters getting beat up and like very violent, like in your face kind of tactics. But what's actually happening a lot of time, especially in this piece as I highlighted in the more kind of genteel, nonprofit, white collar corporate world. It's like there, there are ways to bust a union that no one's going to see or no one's going to notice unless they know what they're looking for that are going to be just as effective and dangerous as the old school baseball bat tactics. Mm. Such a, and it, a lot of it comes down to, um, like I won't, I won't bore you with the, the specific minutia about all the little bits and pieces that go into these campaigns, but essentially something like hiring a specific law firm that sends a signal because there are specific law firms like Proskauer Rose, for example, who are known as union avoidance firms. Their whole mm-hmm. thing is helping corporations and companies figure out how to avoid having a union take root at their workplace. And they are very good at what they do and they make a lot of money doing it. So if you're organizing your workplace and you ask for recognition and your boss is like, hold up, uh, we're going to hire some representation and they hire somebody from that firm or from another firm with that kind of history. That's a signal that like, Oh, this is going to be a battle. Yeah. Or things like, I also mentioned the piece. There's this, uh, okay. So when you organize a union and you, uh, you ask for recognition for voluntary recognition, some employers will just give that and be like, okay, cool. You're the union. We're going to deal with you. But other employers who do not want a union there, they will refuse to voluntarily recognize and they will, then trigger a process that means you have to, your union has to, uh, they have to hold a vote. They'll like force an election and the national labor relations board oversees that election. And prior to the Trump era, you at least had a decent shot of it working out because it was like, you know, it was Democrats, but it was at least fairly worker friendly. But now the, guy, the guys, the old white guys that are in charge of the National Labor Relations Board. Now they were appointed by Trump and they come from these union avoidance law firms. So they are not on your side. So you're already dealing with like a double hostile situation with your boss and with this board. Essentially doing things like that, it's just throwing throwing a spanner on the works. It's, it's erecting roadblocks between the union informing and the union being formally recognized as the bargaining partner at the workplace. Like it's, it's just shady shit, essentially shady, like bad faith stuff that they can write off and brush off as being like, Oh, well, we're just concerned about, you know, protecting our interests or, Oh, we just want to make sure everyone gets their voice heard or, Oh, we just, we're pro union. We're just not sure it's right for us. Yeah. Like, <laughs> 
The funniest example was, I think, what what was that yoga studio? I think it was mm. Core Power Yoga Studio a few weeks ago put out a statement to their employees uh, that, you know, a union was against the principles of yoga, wow. which was wild. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you love I, lo- I, lo- I love that so much. And yeah, yeah, I mean, the the piece, I loved your piece in The Baffler. We'll put it in, we'll put the link to it in the show notes. Um, and I, I think the, the examples that you gave were so interesting and, uh, in a horrifying way. <laughs> and they, they, they underscore your point perfectly, uh, because the, the examples that you gave, the most prominent of which was the ACLU, mm. um, which, you know, has definitely has different connotations in different circles. I think that a lot of us on the left raise an eyebrow at the ACLU just in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but like conservatives <laughs> think, yeah, oh, certainly conservatives think of the ACLU as this like hyper liberal uh, place. And they have, um, yeah, I mean, they've clearly been trying to suppress their employees from unionizing. Um, you also mentioned the Scholar Strategy Network, um, which is um, I, I lived in I lived in Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts before I lived before I moved to New York. So I I was like really shocked to see them in that in in the piece as well. Um, but you know, again, it's underscoring your point that these like supposedly liberal institutions and uh, organizations are. Uh, really fighting tooth and nail from their uh to prevent their their employees from unionizing and having been in a union uh i'm in in two different unions at quote unquote like very liberal universities i can tell you that they are the cheapest just like um they nobody fights a union harder than like a a quote unquote liberal university um Honestly, it's just the the hypocrisy is staggering. But yeah. I mean, there's no such thing as a good boss. It doesn't matter who yeah. they vote for or who they donate to when they feel bad. Like, yeah, it's all the same yeah. shit. Yeah, I I've been one uh, one really prominent anti-union company has been you know, Amazon um, mm. and also uh, by extension Whole Foods, um, who is owned by them, uh, and Whole Foods has developed i think uh a very complicated union busting software that and i i don't i don't remember exactly how it was working but basically they are yeah they've they've tried some new techniques kind of with a with like you know tech union busting do you can you tell us a little bit about that? I know that's kind of out of left field and not what you wrote about, but I was curious about it. Right. I think what they had done was they developed some sort of um, algorithm that and I, I would need to like double check this. So y'all should Google it after we after stop yeah, listening no, I, to this. But I remember I, reading about this. Yeah. yeah. I think they developed some kind of algorithm, some kind of tool that monitored internal communications between employees, like on their company Slack or whatever Bezos brand uh, in iteration of that they use, that would identify words that seemed like they might cause issues and it seemed like a lot of them were union specific and organizing specific words and keywords and that obviously would allow managers etc to identify employees who were thinking about trying to unionize or who were sympathetic with the effort which just adds a whole extra fucked up layer of surveillance on top of like being in a workplace you're already being surveilled by your boss etc 
but having Amazon go in and create something that can just burrow into your communications. It's just, it's just like a new level. It's like a new frontier of union busting. And they're definitely not like they may be the first, but they're not going to be the last. Like I'm, I guarantee you there are other bosses and union avoidance specialists out there who are seeing this and being like, oh, how do we get our hands on that? Like yeah. your boss can already read your Slack messages, which is why for anyone listening who's trying to do some organizing, don't do anything using your company email or your company Slack. Get on Signal. Start a text chain. Do not put anything in anywhere that your boss can see it because it is absolutely legal to organize a union, but bosses can make it a, can make it a real pain in the ass to do so. And what they yeah. don't know can hurt you. <laughs> and yeah, completely. And and also another um, layer of what Amazon is doing with Whole Foods um, is that they are basically tracking by by store location, like the demographics of their employees at a particular store and assessing based on those demographics, like how likely or unlikely they would be, they would want to unionize. Mm. Um, they would be wanting to unionize. So, yeah, I mean, I, I remember reading about that and, and, uh, you know, there's nobody who's, uh, who I more want his head on a spike than, than Jeff Bezos. But, um, it's just, and, and as you said, this is probably like the most anti-labor department of labor we've had in decades, uh, like, ex like in a really explicit way, just yeah, like people who, you know, when you line your department of labor with right to work people, uh, it's just you know, you're, you're setting, setting the table for a very specific outcome. Yeah. They're stacking the deck. Like the labor laws in this country that do exist are still, you know, they're weak enough where it's pretty easy to exploit them and find loopholes if you have the right lawyer anyway. But it's the, the current state of the NLRB is just, it's just a shame. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, I mean, Biden is, pretending to care about the working class until he gets elected. Maybe he'll do something to help unions. He's depending on their vote. It would be tight if they could shake up the NLRB at the very least. But I suppose that is a question for November or Jan I guess January at this point. Do you see hope for a company like Amazon or Amazon specifically for workers there being able to unionize? Mm, I mean, there have been smaller successful actions i think there i think was it in staten island or in jersey there was one warehouse that successfully organized but it's such a massive behemoth that that's sort of the question that organizers are struggling with like how do you how do you unionize amazon how do you it's like how do you yeah. unionize a city but i think you know there are there are other ways to you know enact power and build solidarity and actually force change at your workplace that maybe aren't a specific like a traditional labor union like we have seen in the tech sector the success of actions like walkouts and people speaking out publicly and protests around issues like like look at wayfair and you know the the workers protesting how they provided beds to the ice jails on the on the border like there are there there are always there are always things you can do like even if 
if enacting a traditional labor union at Amazon is a pipe dream, there's still a lot of other things that can be done. I would love to see Amazon unionized fully, but I would also love to see it broken the fuck up. Oh like, yeah, absolutely. Like, like maybe that's the question. Like how, maybe it's not how do we organize Amazon as it exists. It's like how do we break that shit apart and then tackle the smaller pieces? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, the obviously the big and you know, Amazon and Facebook are and Google. There are perfect examples of this. The bigger that these corporations get, the more businesses that they swallow up, the harder it is to wrap your arms around them and they become almost impossible to regulate in any way, which is where we are now. Right. Um, like our labor laws were written and passed at a t- in the 1930s when the biggest thing you had was like standard oil or like very the big railroad. <laughs> yeah. And like they or like they unionized the railroad like that. But it's a yeah. different it is one yeah another reason why it's so important that whoever the fuck gets elected wherever the fuck like spends actual time and legislative power on reforming and updating our labor laws because there's only so much you can do without like having the legal framework in place in this current iteration of our society like we can't we can only go so far without having you know real robust inclusive protections and right now we don't have those Thank you so much. Well, I know that we are reaching the end of our time here. And before we go, I just wanted to, you know, see, is there anything that we didn't ask you about, um, either about anarchism or um, what people need to know about organizing their workplace that you would like to tell our listeners? Oh, man. Um, (laughs) If anything you've heard has struck a chord or has, you know, made you interested in learning more, Please read. There are lots and lots of other people besides me that write about these things. Um, and we would we would love to have you, you know, like <laughs> no one comes out of the womb quoting, you know, Emma Goldman or Kawasi Balagoon. But you can Google them and maybe you'll find that, you know, dreaming bigger is is possible. You know, like why? Why not reach for everything? Why not demand the impossible? That's no, I totally I totally agree with that. And I and that's why I have I have really no no time for for nihilism on the left because I don't know. I I just I think that we that we should just be demanding all all that is possible. Yeah, everything for everyone. Hell yeah. Kim, thank you so much. Where can people follow you online? I am terminally online. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Grim Kim which is my college radio DJ name. And, um, Love that. Yeah, yeah I'm, man, it's funny. It's just like a side fun fact, I guess. People now maybe don't even realize it, but I've been a heavy metal journalist for like 15 years. Like, this is kind of newer territory for me. So <laughs> if you need any recommendations for like the best new death metal records or you want to learn more about labor and anarchism, follow me on Twitter. And I have like a newsletter. I have a Patreon. I have all that stuff. Just don't Google me because there's a lot of weird Nazis out there that have opinions about me. Just just follow me on Twitter. Yeah, follow follow Kim on Twitter. We're gonna <laughs> we're we're unionizing death metal. Uh, and yeah, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for for talking to us, Kim. Yeah, totally. Thank you for Thanks having again. me.
Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. 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 This land is your